The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Paul, we've done it again. <laughs> uh, we'll introduce our co-host in a second here. Tonight's episode, we we are featuring yet another recommendation from the USPSTF. They they dropped the cold cancer, colorectal cancer uh, age to start screening. So we'll be talking about that with our guest, Dr. Michael Barry, who we'll tell you a little bit more about in a second. But Paul, before we do that, can you remind people what is it we do on this show? And then if you would introduce them to our wonderful co-host. Sure, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And like I always say, but always mean, what an expert we have tonight. Uh, to tell you more about our expert, we have the amazing Dr. Elena Gibson, Cracker Jack producer and co-host tonight. <laughs> so I will let her talk about what we discussed and who we discussed it with. Thanks, Paul. That's me. So today we had... <laughs> A fantastic conversation about these new updated USPSTF colorectal cancer screening guidelines with our guest, Dr. Michael Berry. Uh, we reviewed the importance of screening in general as colorectal cancer is the number three cancer in the United States in adults. Uh, we also discussed the decrease in age initiation for screening at 45 years old from the 50 years old on the prior recommendations. And then we go into the risks and benefits of various screening modalities and helping choose the right test for your patient. And our guest today, Dr. Michael Berry, is vice chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and director of the Informed Medical Decisions Program in the Health Decision Sciences Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a clinician at Massachusetts General Hospital. So very impressive. And Elena, you know, we didn't have time for picks of the week with our guest tonight and we didn't do the full thing, but I heard you have some sort of cool new music that uh, you were going to tell us about. Yes. So I was on Night Float recently and I was trying to keep everybody awake. And so my newest hit uh, is Tropical House Music. So <laughs> <laughs> check it out. It's really fun. It's it's like guaranteed to make people smile and like, you could be at a pool party could be in the hospital, could be at home. Kygo is kind of the king of tropical house music if you listen to any Kygo. But And so there's more than one person oh, in this yes, scene? Yes. <laughs> this is a whole genre. Okay. I have literally never felt older than I have in this moment in time right now. <laughs> Just watch TikTok. <laughs> That's not going to help my cause. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I recommend it. You'll have All fun. All right. Yeah. Paul, I'm approaching the screening age. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, thank you for joining us. We've been talking for a little while, but it's time to let the audience in on this. So can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe throw in like some kind of hobby or interest you have outside of medicine and the the task force? Well, my uh, pleasure to be here with you tonight, your audience, and I'm an adult uh, primary care doctor up in uh, Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital who believes in combining evidence and their preferences to get the best outcomes for my patients. I think we can all get on board with that. 
and hobby or interest? You know, I'm, I've got a whole slew of tomatoes on the back porch that are growing <laughs> um, three inches a day in this terrible heat and humidity up here, but I can't wait. Paul, it's just, it seems like most of our guests are growing something. I, it's got to be, uh, I, we, we probably should have gardens, Paul. I don't know if you do. I, I don't think you do. I can't remember if I said this on the show before or not because we have so many well-adjusted gardening guests, but I, I successfully grew exactly one tomato and I kind of watched it ripen and get like incrementally bigger over time. And then I found that a squirrel had taken it off the plant, taken one bite out of it, and then placed it very gently on the railing where we were growing it. And that was that was my one adventure into gardening and then I gave up. That's so sad. The squirrel was like, no, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Chipmunks are even worse. I highly recommend a plum tree. I was gonna say, Elena, do you garden? I f- you, I feel like you would probably you seem you seem more well adjusted than Paul and I. You probably do garden, don't you? <laughs> I don't you? know about all that, but I do garden. It's a okay. new Utah hobby, so it's nice. I have a huge plum tree. It probably produces over five hundred plums a year. It's quite oh, productive. Man. Yeah. I don't know if the climate here would do that, but I I know the family would love it if if we could have a plum tree. Yeah, it's nice. You know, audience, nothing goes faster than the speed of light, but hiring with Indeed comes awfully close. When you can't wait to find great talent, you need Indeed. Don't just hope that your perfect candidate is going to find you. Indeed's hiring tools are going to help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. They help you make a short list of great candidates. The moment you post your job, you're going to get qualified candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Best of all, you only pay for the applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. That's a $75 credit at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we have a lot to get to tonight. Very important stuff. How about you get us into a case from Cashlack Memorial? Yeah, happy to. So the first case, Mr. Colin Polyp. He's a 47-year-old male. He has hypothyroidism and hypertension, and he's coming to clinic really for an annual appointment, check-in, and he needs refills on his prescriptions. He takes some uh, levothyroxine and then some lisinopril. He was recently reading a news article about colon cancer in young adults, and he asks you about screening. Uh, He doesn't have any GI symptoms or changes in his bowel movements. He's no family history of colon cancer, and he's never been screened for colorectal cancer in the past. So just thinking about how you would walk him through the utility of colorectal cancer screening, kind of taking a step back, why do we recommend the colorectal cancer screening and how effective is it at reducing the incidence and mortality of colorectal cancer? Uh, Sure. And first, kudos to him for asking about colorectal cancer screening. That's just terrific. And uh, I appreciate uh, 
you all helping us spread the word on colorectal cancer screening. So the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force now recommends that adults uh, age 45 to 75 be screened for colorectal cancer. And actually after that, uh, from age 76 to 85, that people be screened selectively based on their overall health, their prior screening history, and of course, their preferences. And uh, I'm glad he asked about screening because colorectal cancer is a devastating disease. Uh, it's our number three cancer killer, thinking about both men and women together, with about 53,000 deaths in the United States. And uh, our analyses indicate that many of those deaths are preventable, and uh, thus the, the task force recommendation for screening. And what I, what I might do is just say, and I'll, I'll use this throughout our conversation, Let's imagine a group of a thousand people in the United States at age 40, representing the diversity of uh, race and ethnicity, uh, gender, and think about what might happen to them over time. If we don't screen them, our model suggests that about 80 would develop uh, colorectal cancer over time and about 30 would die of it. And that collectively, if we think of the thousands and thousands of adults in the United States, adds up to that toll of the 53,000 deaths. There's really quite good evidence that we can substantially stem that toll from colorectal cancer mortality. And that's really the rationale uh, behind screening. And Michael, might I ask, can you talk us through a little bit, just in general terms, about what the trends have looked like over the past couple of decades? Have they changed? Has the incidence remained about the same? Is there differences in age groups? Like, what kind of things have sort of evolved over the past couple of decades, if you feel comfortable speaking to that? Uh, indeed, and, and good question, Paul. So there have been a couple of very interesting trends in colorectal cancer uh, incidents in particular, in that for the adults over 50, the incidence has actually been dropping in no small measure due to our screening efforts, particularly for adults over 50. On the other hand, looking at uh, adults in their 40s, we've seen about a 15% increase in incidence over the last 15 years or so, uh, to the point where about 10% of new colorectal cancers are diagnosed before age 50. And uh, th those trends in epidemiology both are a testament to what we can, how we can make a difference with screening, but also thinking about what we may need to do for those younger individuals. That's not the only reason for the change in our recommendation from a starting age of 50 and our prior uh, recommendation to the starting age of 45 now. So I think that's a good place to talk about what evidence did lead to the decision to change the age of screening initiation to 45 compared to 50 years that was recommended in 2016? And along with that, I know we've gone over kind of the grade A, grade B recommendation, but if you could speak to why it was a grade B recommendation. Certainly. Um, well, um, in fact, uh, there were three lines of evidence that uh, led us to drop the starting, uh, starting age for colorectal cancer screening from 50 to 45. Uh, one was the changing epidemiology that we just reviewed. Another is that if you look at the primary trials, and these were largely done with old-style um, GWIAC uh, fecal cold blood tests, Three of those trials actually involve people less than 50. And in the large cohort study of colonoscopy that we relied uh, heavily on for estimates of the impact of colonoscopy, because we don't have 
uh, direct randomized trials there. There were also people uh, under 50 in that study. That was a combination of the physician's health study and the nurse's health study. So there's primary evidence that includes people under 50, not enough to break out the separate impact of screening under 50, but we know the trials had some people under 50 represented. The third line of evidence was really our modeling. And uh, we were very fortunate to have a, a wonderful team of modelers called the CISNET group that are supported by the National Cancer Institute. And the advantage there is uh, we do multiple models of the outcomes of colorectal cancer uh, screening, and we can be more confident that we're making good recommendations when the models agree, as they, as they really did in this case. So let me go back to our 1,000-person uh, cohort, and this will get to the B and A recommendations as well. So um, I mentioned that we'd expect about 80 cases of colorectal cancer occurring and about 30 deaths in that cohort of 1,000 people without screening over time. We think by starting at age 50, you could cut the number of uh, cases by about 50 um, uh, from that uh, number of 80, and you could cut the number of deaths uh, from the 30 down to something close to 5 uh, with regular screening uh, and I'll emphasize regular screening over time, and we'll get to what tests and screening intervals, but this is projected over a lifetime and includes an assumption of perfect adherence with, uh, with screening. Now, in primary care, we know it's seldom <laughs> yeah. that we see perfect adherence, but <laughs> in terms of the modeling, that's where we started. Now, by dropping the age to 45, our models uh, sort of in unison suggested we could drop the number of cases uh, by two or three more and could avoid one additional death in that cohort of a thousand with a drop down to 45. So you get most of the benefits starting at 50. That's the largest benefit. And that's why the A recommendation, which to us means substantial sub certainty of a substantial net benefit, net benefit being benefits minus harms. So we'll get to harms a little bit later, but there's still additional benefit to be had going down to age 45. We were moderately certain of a moderate benefit, which to us is a B recommendation. Now, for practical purposes for implementing in primary care out there, an A and the B is like Nike, just do it. Uh, they both are <laughs> recommendations to do it. And so there's some subtlety in the distinction of grades, but uh, our, our recommendation really is screening for age 45 to age 75, if that clarifies things a bit. I love the way that you gave the example of the, it was so it was a thousand patients screened over a lifetime and the way that it would, would impact things. Um, I think that's that's a really useful way to frame it, especially for patients. And it's, I mean, it's impressive. I didn't realize it was that good that you're, if you're going from 30 deaths with just the way the screening has been even before this, that there was, you were dropping, it's only five people out of a thousand would potentially die. So it's, I, I didn't know how big the mortality benefit is. I guess, guess what I'm saying. Now, just to clarify, the the uh, 30 death assumption in the 1,000 cohort is actually with no screening. With uh, no screening. Yeah. And then with screening, they Because would, we've they done quite a bit down. of, right, we've done quite with, a bit of screening. Uh, 
among the age 50 plus group, that's why you see incidence dropping in yeah. the United States. Uh, but with, uh, with the perfect adherence to screening starting at 50, maybe we can get down close to five. Now, this is a good point for me to say, even with our prior recommendation, starting at age 50, we think about a quarter of eligible people in the United States have never been screened. And uh, obviously, that's a tragedy, given that many of the deaths we'd see in unscreened people are preventable, as, as I've been saying. Having having a full day of clinic today, and Paul, I'm not sure if you were seeing patients in clinic today Same. thinking yep. about this. And I saw a couple people, uh, you know, uh, and we were talk. This was a big converse topic of conversation, trying to figure out like, do they want to te- what test can I convince them to get? And you know, they wanted to know why they needed it. And I, I wish we had had this conversation a, a couple hours earlier. <laughs> <laughs> there, in primary care, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. <laughs> That's exactly right. I know. Yeah. So Elena, what's our next what's our next topic here that we're going to be delving into? Yeah, so I think bouncing off of your clinic day, what different test options are available for colorectal cancer screening and out of those really focusing on the ones that are recommended in this newest recommendation? Surely was glad to hear Matt say he was discussing uh with his patients uh, what different tests are available because we think the key is f- the, that the best test is the one the patient will do. And preferences are quite different in terms of um, the, the nature of the different tests. Um, so the tests that we recommend in our, uh, in our uh, revised statement fall into two categories. There are direct visualization tests that would include um, colonoscopy, but also CT colonography, that would be CT colonography, and flexible sigmoidoscopy, which we've got to remember is still around and has a fair amount of direct evidence behind it, and also the combination of flexible sigmoidoscopy and a stool test, uh, and I'll get to the stool test in a sec. We think colonoscopy in general can be done every 10 years, as long as, you know, nothing concerning is found, like an adenomatous polyp, that CT colonography should be done every five years, as should flexible sigmoidoscopy. If you combine flexible sigmoidoscopy and a stool test, then you could do this flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years with the stool test every year. Now, moving to the stool test, there is a high sensitivity uh, fecal occult blood testing this is a new version of the old GWAC tests that were the subject of so many randomized trials and that first established the efficacy of colorectal cancer screening at reducing colorectal cancer mortality. But the high-sensitivity fecal occult blood tests are more sensitive, and um, that's the first option. The second is a fecal immunochemical test or FIT test as people uh, have heard, that's an option. And then the third uh, stool testing option is a combined stool DNA fit test, which actually combines both tests. And the subtleties in terms of frequency are the uh, high-sensitivity fecal blood test and the fit tests should be done every year. The combined stool DNA and fit test between 
every year to every three years. And we think that uh, that interval is reasonable. So those are the options. And again, although colonoscopy, which is many doctors' favorites, is the most sensitive as a single test, models suggest that as long as people are adherent over a lifetime, and remember for the stool test that comes at you, you know, every year a little bit more, you can get this, uh, a similar level of prevention, at least uh, according to the model estimates over time. Some people like the idea of the getting the colonoscopy, say, uh, the most uh, sensitive test and then not having to do it again for 10 years. Other people think the colonoscopy sounds really invasive and would prefer the stool test, but they have to understand that if the stool test yields something suspicious, then they need a colonoscopy to follow up. So without the follow-up colonoscopy, we don't do any good with the stool test, or for that matter, for flexible sigmoidoscopy or CT colonography. Fortunately for the stool tests, well, less than 10% or so of folks are going to have a suspicious result that's going to require going on to colonoscopy. And I have many patients who, who will say, uh, you know, that's okay. I'll take that chance. It's pretty small. And again, the other thing to emphasize to them is that it's not one and done for the stool tests. It keeps coming at you. But for some people, that's uh, that's okay to avoid the the greater risks of a colonoscopy. And again, the best test is the one that the person will do and follow through with over time. And I'll also add that, you know, it's not a final decision. Someone might do stool blood tests for a couple of years and say, gosh, I've had enough of it. Uh, let's do the colonoscopy. And if that looks okay, I can have a, a longer period of time. So again, uh, as people get experience with the test, they may change their minds. And that's fine as long as they stick to a reasonable screening schedule. That was yeah, that was my exact question because I feel like I, I had that sort of negotiation. I've had patients who have had incomplete prep and have to go through three colonoscopies before it comes out okay. And then they're like, I am not doing that again. And then sort of you make the switch to... Um, Typically, the the DNA test with fit testing is uh, now that we have it. I think is an option that we switch to. But you can you can switch back and forth between modalities as long as you're still doing the follow up. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. Uh, uh, the um, so everything depends on uh, I should say everything, but patient preferences weigh so heavily here. And rather yeah. than having someone try a colonoscopy, hating it, or more often hating the prep, and and deciding right. they're not going to screen anymore, switching over to another reasonable screening strategy is the right way to go. So so we're really fortunate here. We've we've got a screening strategy that's that's really effective at at reducing colorectal cancer mortality. And we've got choices to offer people so we can help find the right screening uh, regimen for them. You know, I, I don't know the, I think this is a little bit outside the scope of the uh, USPSTF recommendation, I, but, I, but you might be able to answer at least part of the question, which is if someone is on a colonoscopy screening pathway and they have a benign polyp that's removed, and, but they want to switch over to a stool-based test, does that work or is it really recommended they have a, a colonoscopy free of polyps before they cuz then they're no longer i guess an average risk person right if they have a if they have some sort of a precancerous polyp well correct and the US preventive services task force focuses on average risk people and our recommendations have to do with the original screening tests and then follow up uh, 
only to the extent that, say, a stool blood test is positive and uh, they need colonoscopy and follow-up. If something's found, a cancer, uh, a polyp, then that gets beyond the purview of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation. Other groups make recommendations in terms of polyp follow-up, but that uh, isn't part of our remit. Okay. Yeah. And the we we had talked about this on one of our recent shows that the uh, multi-specialty task force recently updated the the guidelines uh, for for surveil like for polyps and uh, so that that might be a whole separate show for us, uh, Paul and Elena. I think to to go through that sort of thing. But so if someone's still in the average risk bucket and they want to switch back and forth between tests, it sounds like that's okay. But if they're having polyps and they're wanting to switch to a stool-based test, uh, you probably have to check the the task force guidelines to see what it says about the specific type of polyp they had or reach out to their gastroenterologist. That's probably what I'd recommend to the audience. Right. And they won't find much if they look at the, at our U.S. Preventive Service Task right. Force guideline, but, but uh, there are certainly other guidelines that address that question. So again, just to be clear... We're focused on average risk people. If people have a personal history of uh, cancer or polyps, adenomatous polyps that increase the risk for cancer, or if they've got uh, a family history of, say, a known genetic disorder like the Lynch syndrome that would put them at high risk, our recommendations wouldn't apply, nor would it to people with inflammatory bowel disease. Those uh, recommendations for screening would be separate and really would be part of disease management rather than pure screening, which is, is what we address. Yeah. Did the USPSTF guideline encompass for people who have a like a, a sibling or a parent with a colon cancer? So in in our recommendation, um, we recommend that it not apply to people with diagnosed genetic disorders like Lynch syndrome. It would apply to family histories, uh, but I, I would say that the first thing I would stress is that if someone has a um, a first-degree relative with, say, early colorectal cancer or uh, multiple relatives with uh, colorectal cancer. And remembering that Lynch syndrome-related cancers can include any GI cancer, upper urinary tract cancers, and even uh, ovarian and endometrial cancer in women. So a careful family history to be sure you're not dealing with an undiagnosed Lynch syndrome case would be important. We think roughly 5% of colorectal cancers are attributable to Lynch syndrome, and, and primary care docs can help ferret them out through the careful family histories. Okay. All right. Thank you. This I, you can see how this quickly gets like goes off the rails. Like once people, I feel like any of this, like pulmonary nodules, thyroid nodules, colon polyps, like all this stuff just gets very quickly gets into the weeds of like all these, if this, then that. And, right, uh, right, right. It gets to be, it gets to be tough. All right. So we, so we were talking about the, t- the testing here and I did want to ask a question, maybe Paul, we, with the stool-based test or the the direct visualization test, Paul, are you seeing anybody? I guess a do the uh, do the the DNA test with the fit or doing the flex sig locally? It's not something that I've seen as much. Usually, I'm seeing either just the plain fit test or people go right for the colonoscopy. Uh, in my own practice, I'm not sure how you know broadly applicable this is going to be. I'm actually seeing a fair amount of the DNA with fit testing. Like I actually okay. think there's been relative uptake of that uh, just because it is covered by a lot of insurances and seems ostensibly easier than the direct visualization stuff. Though I have had patients tell me 
that was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. They don't really, <laughs> they, yeah. they don't get too much into the details, but the collection and the processing and the mailing and all that kind of stuff is actually, it's kind of an event. Um, so it's, it's not quite as straightforward as I think is where I patients on, but that's the one I see probably most commonly after direct visualization techniques. Because that, that's the one, the, the SDNA with FIT, uh, I believe they have to collect an entire bowel movement is what it says when you read about it, at, versus the FIT test, I think, is just a stool sample, and the guaiac is like, I think they just use the sticks and the cards. Uh, and, and have to collect over multiple days. So yeah. It's, uh, now, um, I'll, I'll just emphasize that we don't play favorites across that. Uh, the spectrum of tests and, you know, local availability, people's preferences, uh, you know, their insurance coverage all play into picking the right test for them. And Paul's right. Sometimes they don't fully appreciate what uh, a test is like until they go through it, whether it be a direct yeah. visualization test or a stool test. And I, I've had a couple, a couple of people, Elaine, I'd be curious to see what people are doing uh, where, where you're practicing too, but I've had a couple people send in a fit test and it gets rejected because there's something wrong with it. So now this person has collected a stool sample and it didn't process well. And then, you know, that, that has been a little bit of a barrier for me. Uh, the good thing about the fit test is they don't have to do the uh, the dietary, whatever dietary restrictions are that are supposedly to go along with the GUIAC test, which I'm not sure how evidence-based the dietary recommendations are, but I know that's at least something that that it, that people talk about. I, I think I almost pretty widely after direct visualization see people with doing the fit test, and some of that seems to be availability at like my clinic and then also at another clinic that I work at. But I think beyond that, I don't see actually much of the DNA combination test or the CT colonography. I feel like I have never seen. But, so but I, that I will, uh, yeah, I'll just say, I think that will vary depending on location. And uh, I've been a lifelong student of medical practice variation, and we're seeing a good example uh, of it in the discussion right here. Again, the fortunate thing is that these are all reasonable options that can prevent people dying of colorectal cancer. So again, um, no need to play favorites. Uh, uh, you know, local availability, patient preferences can can drive the choice. Yeah. And I'm going to try and force a, an expert transition here, if you don't mind. So Matt, you had mentioned um, sort of inconclusive fit tests, which I imagine would generate a fair amount of anxiety for patients. So you send the test out and then you don't have any result. So I guess that's one of maybe the possible known harms of screening. And, and, and Michael, you talked about net benefit. I wonder if you if we couldn't talk about some of the other potential uh, downsides to screening too, because I know the USPSTF uh, takes those into consideration when talking about different screening modalities. Well, that's right. And we, and we, um, we think hard about uh, potential harms as well as benefits. And fundamentally, our recommendations are based on both certainty, based on the the strength of the studies uh, methodologically and the uh, and the net benefit, which are benefit minus harms. Now, fortunately here, the... Um, the harm side is pretty favorable uh, as well uh, in in terms of uh, getting to that substantial net benefit, say for the uh, fifty and older crowd. Uh, in that, um, 
if, if we think about our thousand person cohort again uh, and imagine them going through any of these different screening strategies, the colonoscopies uh, or the, the stool blood tests, um, the, the two big complications of colonoscopy, which which is really the highest risk of the test, would be bleeding and perforations. And uh, again, bleeding will often stop, but sometimes needs some intervention. Uh, perforations may need surgical repair. And I, I had my first uh, perforation relatively recently. It was uh, no fun for me and especially no fun for the patient, but they're fortunately very rare. So those thousand people, if uh, screened over time, would have somewhere between 10 and 15 uh, bleeds and perforations collectively um, uh, over a you know lifetime of screening, and um, uh, now most of those fortunately would be bleeding episodes and uh, not and not perforations, but there'd be occasional ones. And if you did stool tests, and because many people who do stool tests don't require going on to colonoscopy, uh, it would be fewer, roughly 10. Uh, complications we'd predict over uh, the lifetime of screening. That's uh, closer to 15 if you uh, pick the all colonoscopy regimen, but realizing that those generally need to be done uh, every 10 years. And actually, by going down to age 45, we just add a fraction of the harms because those harms uh, tend to be age-related. So uh, adding a, a colonoscopy for a younger person is uh, even lower risk in general. So um, I, I suppose we should consider the the hassle factor and the burden. Anyone's been through a prep, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, if you if you pick the colonoscopy strategy, let's say our thousand people pick the regular colonoscopies, we'd expect them to get about 4,200 colonoscopies collectively, average of about 4.2 per person. Again, depending on uh, starting age. And I'll, I'll, this will be the uh, starting at age 45 example. And uh, if if uh, they pick say the fit strategy, it would be uh, less than half that, about 1,700 colonoscopies. But remember, you're testing every year. Some of those will be positive, uh, and they'll need to go on to colonoscopy. So uh, there are quite a few colonoscopies in all the strategies, but obviously the most if you pick colonoscopy as your primary strategy. And again, as we looked at those potential harms, they're very real, but um, low probability events, fortunately, and um, still giving us uh, really substantial net benefits for the 15 older group and for 40 to 49, a, a really a moderate net benefit. But uh, those are uh, complications that folks should know about as a, a potential uh, harm, and it may influence their choice of what screening uh, test to pick. You mentioned that a lot of the complications are in older patients, and we're talking bleeding and perforation. This is when they're getting the direct visualization test, like a colonoscopy. We went through it fairly quickly up front. We said that ages 76 to 85, we would be selectively screening them. And I thought it's interesting how they say that it's th those patients in that age range, if they're healthy enough to undergo screening, like life expectancy wise and all that, and they've never had any kind of screening before, those are the ones most likely to benefit. 
So can you talk about the difference between someone who's never had one and is in that age range versus someone who's had regular screening and now has entered that age range? Right. And this is true for, for lots of screening tests, uh, you know, whether you pick uh, say pap smears that if uh, an older woman has never had a pap smear, um, you know, the, the general rule of stopping after age 65, if all your previous pap smears have been normal, doesn't apply if you haven't had a previous pap smear. So similarly, um, if, if, no, if someone hasn't been screened before and is of reasonably good health, the uh, net benefit of screening that person is going to be much higher than if someone's had, say, regular, you know, four colonoscopies through their life, they've all been negative. So the, the marginal value then is going to be smaller. So taking uh, prior screening history, as well as overall health into account, because we'd want people to, you know, have a life expectancy to live long enough to harvest the benefits of uh, early detection and uh, and removal of polyps. And again, because the polyp to cancer cycle takes a long time, someone who's older is is perhaps less likely to benefit from that part of colorectal cancer screening. And then, of course, their preferences, uh, uh, which, which always have a, a voice. You know, that's probably a good time for me to just emphasize uh, that uh, one of the reasons colorectal cancer screening is is so attractive, as as we talk about, is there's really a twofer. You you can remove uh, precancerous polyps and prevent tomorrow's cancers, uh, as well as catch established colorectal cancers early when they could be more curable. That's another analogy to pap smears, where we could treat cervical dysplasia easily in the office, and we reduce the incidence of cervical cancer. For other cancers, um, you know, breast cancer screening, uh, prostate cancer screening in particular, we actually increase the incidence of cancer by looking for it, and uh, and hopefully with a, a return on investment in terms of mortality reduction. So we get the twofer with colorectal cancer screening, and that's important to emphasize. Do, do you think of the biological age versus chronological age? I guess that kind of factors into whether or not the person is, you know, if you have an 80-year-old that's like running marathons or, you know, still, uh, do you, do you think about that when you're thinking about people in this age range, like whether or not, like, do you ever extend screening? I, I in the U S cause a lot of the USPSTF, they stop at 75, but you mentioned the other cancers. And sometimes you have these 76, 77 year olds yeah. that look like they're like 65. Yeah. So, well, clinical judgment and patient preferences are always important. I, I guess it's important to remember that, uh, like Lake Wobegon, we all think we're going to do better than average uh, in terms of our life expectancy, and half of us will be right. Um, but uh, uh, so, so yes, I, I, you know, it's it's uh, more than just a arbitrary age cutoff. You'd use clinical judgment, and again, enroll the patient in in um, assessing their preferences at at making a decision rather than absolutely hard and fast rules. Maybe we should. And, uh, oh, oh, go ahead, Elena. Go ahead. I was just going to talk about. I, I thought it was helpful how the recommendations specifically address screening for colorectal cancer in Black adults, and just why that population was specifically looked at and what was found? A really important question, Elena. So uh, black people are at higher risk for both 
getting colorectal cancer and dying of it than uh, white people at every age, whether it be uh, the over 50 group or the under 50 group. And um, the, the reasons aren't fully understood, but our analysis of the data suggests that inequitable distribution of screening is a substantial reason for the higher mortality in particular, rather than the factor of more biological aggressiveness. And that unfortunately can be tied to systemic racism. And that's something we need to, to root out. Our, uh, the, the data and our modeling didn't suggest that we should do colorectal cancer screening differently for black people say, uh, given their higher risk, we should just get about doing it uh, for black people and being sure that for uh, our black patients and our Native American and Alaskan Native patients are also at somewhat higher risk. So those are groups that we particularly want to be sure to reach out to, to, uh, to get them in for their screenings, answer their questions about it, and, and really make sure, particularly as we expand screening uh, to younger people, that we do so equitably. And also not forget that 25% of people over 50 who've not had their screenings done. So great question. And, and, and that's why that population is such an important focus. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask Elena and Paul, I think we've really gone through most of the recommendations at this point. Uh, do we have any other questions for Michael before we let him go? Or uh, are we ready for take-home points? The one thing we kind of talked about earlier was any differences with other guidelines. And I know at the end of these guidelines from the USPSTF, they mention guidelines from the ECG and the multi-task force as well. So that might be helpful. You know, certainly uh, guideline groups far and wide recommend colorectal cancer screening, uh, not surprisingly, given the that, that we're all looking at similar evidence. Um, the, uh, the American Cancer Society and the um, American College of Gastroenterology have recommended the uh, age 45 starting group. And, you know, I suspect everyone, given the epidemiologic changes, is reviewing the, the evidence there. I'm the best expert on our own guideline and not other people's, of course, but, but having uh, looked at those other guidelines, there, there are certainly many more similarities than differences. And, um, you know, I would read them as, as uh, pretty much recommending the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, any, any last questions from you? No, I guess just the generic, you know, Michael, any, any other changes that you in particular would like to highlight before we let you go? No, I would just reiterate that, um, uh, you know, our uh, review of the data and modeling suggests really a substantial benefit and that there are many uh, preventable colorectal cancer deaths that we can um, uh, get rid of by, uh, by both screening the folks that we've recommended screening for previously and now ex extending screening down to age 45. And we, uh, we uh, are uh, so happy uh, your listeners will get on board to help us uh, because without implementation, our recommendations won't do any good. Yeah, well, we've been doing we've been doing a lot of USPSTF coverage this year because you all have been very busy. We're <laughs> keeping us on our toes in primary <laughs> care for sure. Well, I, I appreciate your helping us spread the word. 
Okay. Yeah, of course. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Not a whole lot of conviction with that one. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to both the USPSTS team, Dr. Barry, and to Elena for helping produce this episode, uh, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for continuing education and mock credit through VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so, Paul, with all of that, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with... Elena Gibson here. <laughs> uh, that just tickled me for some reason. And we, we, we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you're doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.